If you're black in America, you have higher odds of having a food allergy and lower odds of having the support and resources you need. In Allergic Living's Talking Food Allergy podcast, we've launched a series to hear from leading advocates about the realities of managing food allergies for black families, from bias in medical care to food insecurity, school preparedness, and more. My guests today are two of the most influential medical professionals in the field of food allergy. Dr. Ruchi Gupta is a professor of pediatrics and medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago and a physician at Lurie Children's Hospital. At Northwestern, she directs the Center for Food Allergy and Asthma Research. Dr. Gupta is the author of groundbreaking population research studies on food allergy and is especially known for her work on the prevalence of child and adult food allergies in the United States. Dr. Carla Davis is an associate professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston and director of the Food Allergy Program at Texas Children's Hospital. Dr. Davis is highly regarded for her clinical research into food allergic disease, and she has written on the need for diversity and inclusion in allergy research and care. In this podcast, we'll explore the high prevalence of food allergies in Black and minority communities and the barriers to medical care and epinephrine access that these communities experience. Dr. Gupta, I'd like to start with you. You have researched and written extensively on racial disparities in food allergy prevalence, diagnosis, hospitalization, and emergency preparedness among Black, non-white, Latino, and white children. What are the most pressing findings in your studies regarding these differences and racial disparities? Well, that's a great question. And we found significant differences in convincing food allergy prevalence by race and ethnicity. In fact, Black children had significantly higher rates of having a food allergy compared to white children. Some examples of the number, we had about 7% of white children presenting or having a convincing food allergy compared to about 8.4% of Latinx children and 8.9% of Black children. They had significantly elevated odds also of having multiple food allergies. However, their odds of experiencing a severe reaction were not different by race or by ethnicity. And Dr. Davis and I have recently published some data specifically to shellfish allergy, which is significantly higher in Black children and Black adults compared to white children and white adults. What we do see is not only increased prevalence, but differences in what they do present with and how they present. That's a really important finding. How do we see food allergies and how differently are they presenting? Just like asthma and other atopic conditions, we know there are differences. It's just we need to figure out what those are so that we can provide individualized management to all our patients. Your other question was around diagnosis. This is really interesting for us. We've seen some changes over time. In 2011, when we published our prevalence paper for children specifically, and then we published another one in in 2018, we did see a positive change take place. In 2011, we found that Black children had equal rates of food allergy. However, we're not being diagnosed at equal rates. 
And in 2018, we did see similar diagnosis rates. So they were not being diagnosed less with food allergy. Now, that is just diagnosis by a physician. So that could be their primary care physician. I'm not talking specifically about how many do get to see an allergist. But we were finding in our 2018 data that Black children were being diagnosed with a food allergy at a rate of about 5.9%. So almost 6% of Black children in the U.S. had a diagnosis or said they had a diagnosis of food allergy compared to about 4.2% of white children. So there was no significant difference in the rates of overall physician diagnosis. Take into account then socioeconomic factors. We looked in the Medicaid population and we were getting a much lower rate of diagnosis of food allergies, closer to 1% compared to what you see in private insurance claims data. So there are significant differences in diagnosis that exist specifically by socioeconomic status. But in our large prevalence database, what we did find was that there were higher rates of diagnosis in Black children compared to white children. Dr. Davis, you lead the food allergy program at Texas Children's Hospital, which has a large number of patients from the Houston area and also has a strong partnership with Houston Public Schools. And you have written extensively about food allergy education in schools. Are there barriers to diagnosis and educating parents about how to manage food allergy and food avoidance? What are they? How do you address them? And what's the role of race? There are definitely barriers to diagnosis, and it's heartwarming to hear from Dr. Gupta's work. There have been improvements, but I will say that there are definitely barriers to children getting to the allergist tertiary care offices. Although in, in our center, we see a lot of food allergy patients and we do have a diverse population, it is not as diverse as actually the, the greater Houston area. We see more white children than we do uh, Hispanic and black children. And in the Houston area, there actually is a, a very strong correlation with uh, ethnicity and socioeconomic status. So Black and Latina children are typically more represented in the lower socioeconomic uh, strata of, uh, of Houston and therefore would be more likely to have Medicaid or public insurance. They would also be more likely to go to um, a public school system. And so the barriers to diagnosis really include uh, having the time and the space in one's work responsibilities, work schedule to actually get to the office, and then also the financial responsibility that might be needed for a family to be present at work versus getting time off to come to the office. I do see that just getting to the office can be a barrier for children who are in an underrepresented group. Those that do make it to the uh, the allergist office can also have some misconceptions about how food allergy is diagnosed and there are barriers to having the oral food challenge for instance that is the gold standard to diagnose food allergies with a very convincing history and a blood test one can be fairly certain that a child is allergic or a person is allergic but there are many cases that are not as uh, definite 
and an oral food challenge is needed. And from an insurance standpoint and a copay standpoint can be quite expensive. We, we do see that significantly. The other piece of this is really, so when we see patients in the clinic and we say, eat food that don't have milk or egg in them, there's a pretty significant barrier to finding affordable foods that the patients and the families can readily get. You, If you think about it, one would have to have either an online access to these foods or transportation to a grocery store that may not be in uh, their community. So this can also be just a barrier to kind of managing this food avoidance piece. There is also a lack of allergen-free foods in food banks. So minority children uh, or underserved populations may have limited choices for where they get their food. And so unfortunately, I've had cases where food allergies have contributed to chronic disease and a family was not able to access these allergen-free foods. It was not available through government programs like WIC, and we actually had to use medications to try to decrease the inflammation and chronic disease like gastrointestinal diseases that are associated with food allergies. So there definitely can be these barriers, but I do find that there are some uh, very practical things that can be done in order to improve our ability to educate families that need it. There's some simple in terms of working to establish trust with patients and families. We have a team in our food allergy program, and we're a very diverse team, which helps because having a diverse team members that can connect with family members and share with them and educate with them really goes a long way. We did see that when we did our work in the Houston Independent School System, the nurses that were right there in the elementary schools were really able to connect with families and, and give education. Um, so this is an important piece. Dr. Davis, you are completely right. And in our economic study, we did find that there was a huge disparity in getting to an allergist. So Black families said they spent less on special diets and less on specialty visits and more on emergency department visits. There is still barriers in so many ways. Transportation, work, getting an appointment, especially in the Medicaid population. I wanted to share some of our uh, work in the school district here, which is the fourth largest in the country. When we surveyed all of the schools for the children that had been diagnosed with food allergy and that the nurse knew was in the school, we found that identification of children in the schools with food allergy, about 75% in the upper socioeconomic schools, and there were very few identified children in the lower socioeconomic schools. When we asked about the epinephrine and whether each child had epinephrine there. It was a, about 15% of the children who had food allergies in the schools having epinephrine present. And the epinephrine we found was actually more likely to be in the um, higher socioeconomic school districts. And so, um, so we, we do think that there is a disparity in kind of the, the children who, who need epinephrine at school uh, with regard to socioeconomic status. So we thought, well, let's see if we could try to influence this through nursing education. Just educated the nurses on how 
they could help address some of the barriers and misconceptions that families had about coverage of epinephrine how they could get a food action plan to the school. And we found that we were able to actually increase the number of children that had available epinephrine to about 85%. So I do really believe that if there's education among health providers or that could influence these communities, then it'll make a huge difference in their ability to manage food allergy. Dr. Davis just touched on the importance of epinephrine and the difficulty in accessing it. And Dr. Gupta, I know you've, you've looked at this issue closely. We know that epinephrine has been hard to come by across the food allergy community, not only in the U.S., but internationally. Shortages have been an issue, recalls, affordability. And I'm wondering what the challenges in particular are to low-income patients and patients of color in accessing epinephrine based on the data you've looked at. We're fortunate to be in a time now, finally, where we have choice in our epinephrine auto-injector and a lot more variety. Hopefully, people have an easier time accessing their epinephrine. Now, of course, there's differences in how they're all used, so education on the device that the patient has is so critical. Other data that we just published recently where we were seeing how many kids who went to the emergency room for a severe food allergic reaction had had epinephrine prior to coming in. In this group, we found significant differences by race. So children with Medicaid received pre-ED epinephrine less frequently than children with private insurance, and it was almost by half. So it was 25% compared to 44%. There are still differences, and is this because they don't have their epinephrine, or is it that education piece of how to use it? Because one thing I know is so complicated for anyone with a food allergy is when do you use epinephrine? The allergy community has been trying to agree on this and simplify it for the patient population, but it is very complex and you do need that degree of education and awareness and access. I mean, I think those are the three components that are not happening as frequently in the Black community. And I think we really all need to focus from a a provider level on how do we make sure that there's access, there's education, and there's awareness in their full community. And then How do we make sure we personalize that based on that patient and their situation? Dr. Davis, when it comes to research, how well are patients of color represented in clinical trials? And why is it important that they be represented in these trials? Yes, that's a great question. Patients of color really are not well represented in clinical trials. And I do believe it's very important for them to be represented because we know that in other atopic diseases like asthma, there can be specific populations that have more severe disease. And also, um, it's important for us to know if these treatments work in everyone or if there are certain uh, populations where they are less or more effective. But there are definite challenges to 
recruitment of patients of color into these studies. Ethnicity is not always reported for populations. I think in the past decade, we got a little bit away from really reporting or thinking that it was important to put these details into the reports. And so the first thing that could be addressed is that it's recorded and and reported. Other challenges with underrepresented populations are numerous. One is the history of research in the Black community with the Tuskegee experiment. Underrepresented you know, Black populations were treated with something that was known not to be very effective. As research subjects, they not given the treatment or the knowledge that they should have been. And so there's a mistrust of research in general. And additionally, in the Hispanic or Latino community, there is a hesitance for some in the community to actually interact Frequently, I did see this through the school district, to, to interact with medical personnel on a regular basis. It's going to take actually reaching out to those communities to recruit patients because, as I mentioned, we typically recruit from the clinics where we work. And sometimes the patients that could come into the research studies and offer diversity just aren't in those places. In order to do a better job of, of getting persons of color into research studies, really there would have to be an intense effort to form relationships with the healthcare providers that take care of these patients and, and build some community involvement and support and trust. Uh, and it's just uh, something that I think over time will, will need to be addressed. In, in the clinical trials that we have performed, the number of patients of color is really on the order of more like three to five percent. I do believe our population is actually more diverse than those coming from the multi-center international trials. And in many cases, the multi-center national trials don't, uh, don't always report the ethnicity. So I think it's important that ethnicity is reported uh, as well as racial background in some of these much larger studies. So taking a more personal perspective, Dr. Davis, I'd like to start with you. What prompted you to work not only in the field of allergy, but particularly to research and look at issues of disparity among the food allergy community and access to care and treatment? That's that's a, a wonderful question. As I've been asked this over the years, I, I had two patients that moved me to have compassion for Black patients that have food allergic disease um, or are not adequately diagnosed. And one of those was a little boy who had a very severe eczema and milk allergy, um, along with about five other allergies. His mother was a nursing student. She had great aspirations uh, for her career. Uh, And when she put him in daycare and educated and tried to educate his providers, he continued to have reactions to milk anaphylaxis reactions and eczema. Uh, She quit her nursing school and uh, moved back in with her mother, with her child, so that her child could be safe. And that impacted me because I really saw the great change that it uh, had on her life and uh, and that she really had this uh, this barrier and she couldn't keep her child safe. The other patient I had was uh, was an African-American gentleman who um, was from New Orleans, was told that he had shellfish allergy and never had had a reaction in his life, got skin tested, which was positive, and was told never eat shellfish again. He came to me and he looked like he 
was had cancer or TB. He was emaciated. And I said, what's wrong? He said, the doctor said, I can't eat shellfish. And that's the only thing I eat because I'm from New Orleans. So I went through the painstaking process of convincing him that I didn't think he had food allergy and challenging him. My own mother has a shellfish allergy. That also really prompted me to move into that field. And Black patients have a higher incidence of shellfish allergy. And that's, um, that's what I'm working in today. When I was doing my residency at University of Washington and I was in my primary care clinic, I noticed striking differences in my patients by race who would come see me and then who would end up in the hospital with asthma. This really bothered me back then because I would give the same care to all my patients. However, Black children would end up then in the hospital a lot more frequently and as you looked in the research, you noticed that there was a significant disparity in asthma by race, and not only disparity in prevalence of the condition, but also somehow in healthcare utilization. I felt at that point that maybe there was something more I could do to contribute to understanding that. I think that's how I got into my interest in the racial disparities that may exist in a condition and and what can we do as researchers to understand the reasons for that and develop interventions for that? And then when I moved to Chicago after my fellowship focused on asthma disparities, I got into food allergy thanks to a family who had two children with food allergy who really showed me the importance of this area and the lack of research. And this was 16, 17 years ago now. As I started looking at food allergy, I realized that it was related to asthma. It's an atopic condition. However, there was way less known about it and a lot less known about any kind of differences or disparities by race or ethnicity. I guess at that point, I felt like this could be an area where I could contribute something as a researcher, similar to what I was doing for asthma, but there were quite a few people in the space of asthma compared to food allergy. That's what prompted it. And then as I started working in this area, I met so many families that really touch you with their experiences. As physicians, as researchers, we know that these disparities exist, but you are in your bubble and you see the patients you see. And until research is done and data is uncovered to really show it on a larger scale, there's not much that we collectively do about it. Today, I am so excited that people are paying attention to it and having these conversations because obviously as providers, our goal is to help every child, every adult with whatever their condition is as individual level as possible. My big call out for researchers is as we do research, whether it be on potential treatments or diagnostics or just general public health research like I do, it's so important to really think about the population that you're looking at and make sure it's diverse racially, ethnically, even from a socioeconomic standpoint, because we do want to provide good care to all our patients. And how do we really understand what may be preventing certain groups from getting care or what genetic differences they have that would influence their care until we engage and involve patients of all race. We do have a grant from the National Institute of Health to look at differences in race, by race, food allergy characteristics, right? So we are enrolling half black children, half white children, and now we got a supplement 
to enroll Latinx children, people are paying attention and funding research to really understand the differences. So I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by everyone who cares about this area. I really do think together we need to focus on those three things, awareness, access, and education, and make sure all our families have all three of those in the ways they need. How did your medical training prepare you not only to work with patients of different socioeconomic backgrounds, but what biases did you encounter? What can the medical education field do better regarding racism and bias? I really do think back all the way to undergrad, medical school, residency, fellowship. I don't know if there was a huge emphasis on the biases that people may have. And we do all have implicit bias, and we have to recognize that. We all have to work on ourselves first. I know in our center, our goal is to do implicit bias training because we can't ignore it. During training, it wasn't a thing. As you're training to be a doctor, your goal is to care for all children equally, hopefully. For me, that was just an area that I was drawn to. I felt that there were these inequities and really started doing research because I thought it would be a way to understand them faster and better than seeing one patient at a time. Although it takes all of us to really make that change happen. There are terms for this and there is education for this. And we can look inside ourselves and our teams and our institutions and recognize these biases and start to really reform. I know I'm doing that personally. I'm doing that in my own center. And I know, you know, our institution is working on doing that. It's an exciting time. It's an encouraging time. And I'm hoping real change will come out of this where we can all work together to improve care, especially in the Black and Latinx communities that have for so long been underserved. Having a case-based, personal, interactive learning module in medical school can make a difference. I went to Duke Medical School, and in my first year, we interacted with actors and actresses who were prepared patients for us. In each interaction, it was designed to highlight a specific part of the case that addressed either the socioeconomic status, the education, the cultural background of that patient. That was very, very helpful for me as I moved into my career. These can be helpful for medical students and residents that train. Additionally, I do believe that we all have implicit bias. It's just what our brain does. We see a person and tend to attribute characteristics of other people we've seen with those same characteristics to that person. And I think the first step in really combating what might be our own biases toward other people is uh, learning what they are and being educated on how we can change them and combat them. And so there's some wonderful resources with implicit bias questionnaires and surveys that people can really learn about. These things should be incorporated in medical training, even ongoing professional development. These kinds of implicit biases can be minimized. Let me thank you so much for being with us today on the Talking Food Allergy podcast. You've said some really important things that have an impact on the broader community of families managing food allergy. It was my pleasure to talk with you and uh, an amazing researcher, Dr. Ruchi Gupta. Thanks. I appreciate you doing this and Allergic Living doing this and letting me be in these conversations with Carla Davis, who is also 
just a phenomenal physician, person, human being. This has been the Talking Food Allergy Podcast from Allergic Living. My guests today were Dr. Carla Davis and Dr. Ruchi Gupta. To learn more about Dr. Davis's work, visit texaschildrens.org. To learn more about Dr. Gupta's work, visit cfaar.northwestern.edu. Be sure to visit allergicliving.com and the new This Allergic Life microsite. I'm your host, Jen Jobrak, National Food Allergy Consultant with Food Allergy Pros. Thank you for listening.